The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. If we took everyone who's not on pharmacotherapy for diabetes, who has type 2 diabetes, and said, we're not going to give them first-line metformin, we're going to do first-line SGLT2s or first-line GLP-1s for that population. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled First-Line Therapy for Type 2 Diabetes with Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors and Glucagon-like Peptide 1 Receptor Agents. The purpose of this study is to look at the cost-effectiveness of using these as first-line drugs as opposed to second-line drugs. Joining us on the podcast are two of the authors, the senior author, Dr. Nita Leiterapong, is a board-certified general internist and associate director for the Center for Chronic Disease Research and Policy at the University of Chicago. Dr. Aaron Wynn is a PharmD who is a health services researcher interested in academics, quality improvement, and patient outcomes with a focus on factors that impact cost, quality, and access to health care amongst vulnerable populations. We hope you learn some important things about cost and effectiveness from this podcast. Thank you, Anita and Aaron, for joining us for this conversation. I was really attracted to this article because type 2 diabetes management is something that as an internist we think about constantly, and we've done multiple podcasts on SGLT2s, uh, we've done a podcast on GLP-1s, and I was really attracted to addressing cost-effectiveness analysis to the first treatment uh, in type 2 diabetes. What I'd like you to do first is a lot of our listeners really don't understand cost-effectiveness analysis. So if y'all could describe what that concept is, and then we'll get down to some of the nitty-gritty. Sure. So cost-effectiveness analysis tries to measure the relative value of a new treatment or new technology, could be a screening program, all, all hosts of things. And what's really important there is that we're comparing at least two or more treatments or technologies, if you will. It's always comparative in nature. And so in a more kind of formal way, what it's trying to do is create a mathematical comparison of different treatments as it relates to both costs and consequences. And so you might say, what what do you mean by consequences? So you could, you know, kind of broadly think of this on how it impacts patients' health and how cost effectiveness, that term specifically, is pretty broad. So you could measure health in a 
bunch of different ways. You could just look at something like, how does this treatment impact number of days hospitalized or reduction in uh, systolic blood pressure when comparing two or more interventions? And if you did something like that, you could come out with a metric that would say for every $1,000 we spend, on average, we can reduce a patient's systolic blood pressure by five points. However, uh, measuring it in this sort of a unit, it's hard to kind of go between different interventions or different even disease states to understand, is this giving me good value for money? And so oftentimes, we'll then measure things more broadly. So we'll try to measure things broadly as overall health. And how that is done is typically with some sort of uh, quality of life weight that's applied to a patient being alive. And so once we've measured health in this somewhat holistic way of saying, we're going to measure not just, you know, systolic blood pressure reduced, but we're going to measure how your quality of life is multiplied by how many years you're living. This becomes a specific type of cost effectiveness analysis called a cost utility analysis. And it then allows you to compare different sorts of treatments and they can be impacting patients in different ways since it's all now health is now always measured with the same same metric and so mechanically what these studies will generate is what's called an incremental cost effectiveness ratio which is just the change in cost of one treatment compared to another divided by the change in health and as we're talking now in quality adjusted life here so that's what you're going to get from a cost effectiveness analysis. One of the things I've learned from talking to people about this is the word cost is sort of a hot button for people. What do we mean by cost? And in this study, are we looking at prices as opposed to costs? Because that's what we need to look at. Exactly. Yeah. So you might say prices are are always inflated. And so what we're trying to get at is, is this concept of true cost. So uh, what's the opportunity cost or what would we do in absence of this? And so there's a, a pretty broad literature that you can then look at and say, all right, if a patient has a, a heart attack, if we compare that patient to a similar patient, uh, what would the cost of that occurring be. And so then every time a patient has a heart attack, we can assign that unit cost to it to a patient. Okay. People always get nervous about uh, qualities, quality adjusted life years. So for example, if we could prevent someone from uh, losing uh, visual acuity, the person who loses visual acuity might have a lower quality of adjusted life year. How good are those numbers and uh, why do some people get very nervous when we talk about this? Sure. Peter Newman has written a lot on this topic specifically. So if you're really interested out there, I would really encourage you to read some of uh, Peter's work. But just generally, so quality adjusted life here tries to combine the length of life and the health related quality of those years. So you can think of it as a patient has a certain disease, and we're trying to figure out essentially the quality of those life years. So typically, just to really understand what a quality is or a quality adjusted life year, if a person is in perfect health, we would say that is weighted at one. And if a person has died, that would be a zero. And so in between one and zero is where we're all living. And we're trying to say if a person, again, has a heart attack or has congestive heart failure, 
Uh, what is the quality of those life years? And so these can be measured in a few ways. The first way is just having a vignette that you have uh, individuals read and you have just, you could think of it as a thermometer or a zero to one sort of a, a line. And you say, where would you value that sort of a, a health state? You know, you describe the symptoms and everything. Uh, so that's called a visual analog scale. Another approach that's used quite frequently is what I always think of as a series of would you rather questions. So again, you have this vignette that describes a certain health state. And you ask patients over and over again, would you rather have five years of perfect health or 10 years in this specific health state or living with this disease where you describe the symptoms and limitations. And you keep asking a patient until they get to really their break even point where they say, I wouldn't trade any more healthy years of life to live in this specific health state. So that's one method that people use to determine the, uh, the quality of life weight. And the third is this kind of universal or generic classification system. So the EQ5D is an example, or the health utility index is another. So with the EQ5D, patients are asked about a series of attributes, mobility, pain, self-care, that sort of thing. In each of these attributes, you have three different levels. And so you can ask a patient that has, again, congestive heart failure or something like that, fill out this sort of a questionnaire and based on their responses, then on the back end, it's scored and turned into a quality of life weight. And so this is an indirect approach, but it's used again quite frequently. So these are how quality adjusted life years, these are the you know main approaches on how these are done. But as you said, there's a lot of debate and interest in these. That said, if you use different methods, sometimes you will end up with different qualities. However, usually the ranking of different health states is pretty similar. And when other researchers in a variety of clinical areas have used qualities derived from different approaches, the cost effectiveness is usually you end up with the same sort of qualitative conclusions. So let's go ahead and, and uh, frame what question you were asking. So let's be very precise about who we're talking about, who are the patients we're talking about, and what is the decision that we're trying to distinguish? I'll jump in here. And, and thanks for having us uh, come in and talk about talk to you today and talk to your podcast. It's really quite fun and an honor to be here. So we're really asking a question that does, has not been asked um, and is not being done in clinical practice, or it's not actually recommended by the clinical guidelines right now. So we were asking, you know, currently, if you look at the American Diabetes Association guidelines for, you know, clinical recommendations for treating hyperglycemia, they say, start people off with lifestyle intervention. And for the first pharmacologic medicine, start them with metformin. And, you know, we sort of saw the writing on the wall that with the outstanding benefits that have been seen for the SGLT2s and GLP1s, it is quite plausible that people would start to, you know, have a halo effect and be like, you know, yeah, metformin, great for first-line pharmacotherapy, but what about these other drugs? Can we start to use those as first-line ahead of metformin? And so what we wanted to try to do is understand what would that look like for the for the U.S.? What would that look like if we took everyone who's not on pharmacotherapy for diabetes, who has type 2 diabetes, 
and said, you know what? We're not going to give them the first line metformin. We're going to do first line SGLT2s or first line GLP1s for that population. And then follow a cascade of pharmacotherapy that you know, is in line with what we were, would already recommend from the ADA. And what would that look like as a country if we did that for them? Would it be cost effective? It's not a question about benefit and if it would help people. We weren't really worried about that. We said, you know, we believe the clinical trials that it helps people, but is it cost effective to do that? You used a very clever technique called Monte Carlo simulation. And um, it, it, Monte Carlo reminds us of gambling, but this is not a gambling thing. Please expand on the idea. The idea is that you break uh, someone from the time you start them on medication into blocks of time. At the end of each block, something good or bad could happen, and you may have to change uh, your route, and that changes where they are in the simulation going down the road. Could you talk a little bit about what you were doing exactly with the Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo simulation? Sure. There are lots of trials for SGLT2s and GLPA1s, and we started with those, and uh, we combined lots of trials that fit our inclusion criteria into a meta-analysis to figure out the effect of these medications. However, the problem with these trials is they only follow patients for a few years, at max. And we think that the benefits of most of these treatments won't be realized within that time frame. And so, you know, what do we do? We want to understand the value of these new treatments, but the trials have limited data. So in order to do that, we uh, employed a mathematical model of disease progression. And so how I always think about and kind of talk about uh, these sort of mathematical models, I imagine them as a machine with different levers. And you can pull these levers to see how it then changes the end product or the outcome. So for us, it's their quality adjusted life years and their costs. And with our model, uh, some of these levers would be something like A1C or systolic blood pressure, cholesterol. And then we can see how that changes patients' trajectory of, of events um, and how those events then result in different qualities and different costs. And so what the Monte Carlo means is we used NHANES to identify a patient population that had diabetes that hadn't had a treatment yet. And then we take them and everything we know about them at that time point, and then we're able to simulate them for the rest of their life based on uh, mathematical models of the natural uh, history of diabetes. And so we can take a patient and we can see what would happen to them if they started on metformin, what would happen if the, to them if they started on an SGLT2. And then uh, over each year of their life, we predict the probability that a host of different cardiovascular and microvascular events would occur, the costs of those macrovascular and micro microvascular complications, and of course, death. And for each patient, we do this, I think we did it 2,500 times for each patient to get a precise estimate of what we think uh, would happen to this patient and then to the entire cohort of diabetics if they started on different treatments. And so the Monte Carlo part is that we do this over and over and over again to account for uh, risk. So we're just talking about the first drug. We're not talking about someone who now has proteinuria, someone who now already has coronary artery disease, et cetera. 
but just brand new. They're, they come into your office, you diagnose type 2 diabetes, and you're going to start treating them. I'm going to try to expand on, on this, and I'm going to ask some questions which may, may or may not be good questions. They were just things that came to my mind. Sure. Do you have in the formula the potential benefit of delaying the onset of chronic kidney disease? Do we have any data on that at all? And if not, did you consider doing a sensitivity analysis where you said, yeah, it makes it less likely that they're going to develop chronic kidney disease since about somewhere around one in three patients with with type 2 diabetes eventually develop some chronic kidney disease? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, one of the benefits that we've known from these drugs is, is on kidney disease. So really important. So we did, we did include a change in EGFR for SGLT2s. So if people were starting SGLT2, then they had a benefit of not improving their EGFR because it, it went down actually. And that's what the clinical trials showed uh, that we included from the meta-analysis. And then for end-stage renal disease, uh, GLP-1s had a benefit where it actually decreased the rate of end-stage renal disease. But one of the bigger challenges that we found when we did our meta-analysis is that the clinical trials define outcomes in renal disease differently. And it makes it really hard to combine results. So if you have different definitions for your EGFR outcome that you're going to report, or your, you know, is it, is it moving from CKD stage X to Y? you know, it makes it really hard to do a meta-analysis if like you're comparing apples to pears, you know? And so that was one of the challenges that we were disappointed actually, is one of our criticisms in our meta-analysis paper that we wrote, you know, can we get some standardization around end-stage renal disease, end-stage kidney disease outcomes, chronic kidney disease outcomes, so that way um, people can actually look at things um, more easily. But there was some benefit. So just to be argumentative, you know, ACE inhibitors, decrease the, the estimated GFR when you first start them, SGLT2s, but they have long-term benefits in people who have proteinuria. Were, were there any data you could find on whether or not SGLT2s or GLP1s delayed the development of proteinuria? Because that's really the question that yeah. uh, someone has CKD. We totally wish we could find things like that. And this is the speaking to like the definitions of albuminuria were different mm-hmm. and the different trials. And so you couldn't combine them. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was a major challenge. And, and, and the data exists. It's, you know, we want to believe that the data is out there. The other thing I would say, though, is our model doesn't, mo- doesn't have equations for like moving from CKD stage one to two to three to four to five and the prediction of you know, CKD three or CKD four or prediction for microalbuminuria or macroalbuminuria. The hard outcome that costs money uh, in our model is end-stage kidney disease. And that affected a very small number of people. Lots of people, of course, develop chronic kidney disease with diabetes. But thankfully, a lot of them do not go on to end-stage kidney disease. And that's where the real difference is. And also, I would say is like the way our model is built, um, we're comparing the same population to all the different interventions Mm -hmm. and the same benefit to all the interventions. So some of the differences might wash out that we if we didn't include them. Did you have any adjustment for the positive impact of weight loss with GLP-1s? We did. It was about two kilograms 
um, which is not a lot, but better than nothing. And it's not the same as what we've seen in sort of the, the more recent trials um, with other GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, especially you know, when treated, used to treat obesity. One of the issues, you know, we, we had the data we had, and so we were able to use the data we had at the time. Um, but I would say that in clinical practice, I haven't seen the same. And the other thing I would say is the GLP-1s that we included, we did it as a class effect. So we said all the GLP-1s on average, you put them all together and this is the difference. Now it is looking like different GLP-1s have more of an effect than others. And so our study was not able to account for that and uh, isn't able to account for studies that came after our study either. And I guess the the last uh, big question that people will want to know is, did you find any impact on the development of coronary artery disease and or heart failure with these medications, because at least once you develop heart failure, we know that SGLT2s are very good. And once you develop coronary artery disease, we know that both SGLT2s and GLP-1s are very good. And we know that people with type 2 diabetes get a lot of coronary artery disease and a lot of heart failure. We did. So first-line SGLT2s and first-line GLP-1s definitely had an effect on macrovascular outcomes. So lower rates of heart failure, ischemic heart disease, myocardial infarction, and stroke. Um, that was where the strongest effect is. So yes, we definitely had an effect. The problem was the cost. It wasn't the benefit of the drugs. Okay. So right now, let's let's get to the bottom line, and then we'll just talk about limitations. Uh, the bottom line is that as a first drug, before there's any clue of complications of diabetes, that SGLT2s and GLP-1s are so expensive that by anybody's definition of how much money you're willing to spend for a quality adjusted life year, they're out of the range of what we normally do. Perhaps you could expand on that. Sorry, you said it so well. <laughs> I mean, that is, <laughs> I mean, that is well, how much more, uh, how expensive was it? And, and what do we, what do we usually think is acceptable? I'll let Aaron take the the usual acceptable, and then I'll say how expensive it was. Sure. So in the U.S., a lot of times you'll see people say $100,000 per quality adjusted life year. That was thrown out for a long time. Now I see oftentimes people say $150,000 per quality adjusted life year gained, meaning as an intervention improves on average patient's quality adjusted life expectancy by one unit we're willing to pay $150,000 for that increase. So if we you know, increased life uh, quality adjusted life years by two with an intervention, we'd be willing to pay $300,000 or that would be at the threshold, if you will. So here's the bad news. Um, the first line SGLT2 inhibitor had a, a cost per quality of $478,000, nearly half a million dollars. And unfortunately, because the first-line GLP-1s are injectables, they had decreased quality, like they had a benefit for cardiovascular disease, macrovascular disease, but because people, there's a decreased quality of life that has been found in the literature of injecting the injections, they actually had lower quality of life compared to metformin. And so they, we don't even calculate a cost per quality. When you look at the oral GLP-1 receptor agonists, which, you know, you don't have to inject yourself, no discount, you know, no decreased quality of life there, they cost a lot of money. And so they cost $823,000 per quality adjusted life year. 
So way above the 150,000 for quality. And the natural question is, well, how, how could you get below the $150,000 per quality? If the cost for SGLT2 inhibitor would be under $5 per day and under $6 per day for the oral GLP-1 receptor agonist. Okay, doing quick math in my head, that, that means for an SGLT2, approximately $150 a month. And the last time I looked it up, uh, the SGLT2s were generally in the range of $500, $600, per month if you're buying them over the counter. And a little bit more expensive, I think, for the GLP-1s. Let's talk about what information we should get from this study. Uh, so I'm going to throw this out here and have you expand on it. Number one, and we've said this multiple times, this is only addressing the initial medication decision. It doesn't speak to people who already have heart disease, who are, have signs of macrovascular disease, or who have signs of kidney disease, already have proteinuria. Those patients, if you did a Monte Carlo on them, you're going to get a much different answer. And that's not the question you're trying to answer. So please just restate that. And I uh, want to make sure that our listeners don't think that, that it's not a good idea to use those drugs in the right circumstance. Yeah, totally right. Spot on. So this study was looking at the first line treatment for people with type 2 diabetes. What's the first medication to start? Should you start metformin, SGLT2s, or GLP-1 receptor agonists? Not something that's recommended in clinical practice to start first line SGLT2s or GLP-1s. Should we do it? Can we afford to do it? And so second line treatment, preventive, you know, secondary prevention for people who've got cardiovascular disease, cardio, you know, chronic kidney disease, that's not what we're asking. And actually everyone on all three arms of what we did got those drugs if they had those conditions, had, got the SGLT2s and GLP1s. So that was not what we were asking. The other thing I would, I would say is also, if we were to do first line SGLT2s and GLP1s instead of metformin, our study does show that we will decrease macrovascular complications for people. The problem is we can't afford to do it in the U.S. because of the cost of the drugs. So that's wonderful. Nita and Aaron, I want to thank you all so much for joining us on the podcast. I think that you've shed a lot of light into this important analysis and put it in a beautiful perspective. So thanks again. It's been really fun being here. Thank you so much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. As we stressed, this analysis focused only on the simple question of what drugs should we use first for a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Because of the high prices for SGLT2s and GLP1s, the analysis showed that there were great benefits to starting these, but not an acceptable cost for these as first-line therapies. The analysis does not apply to patients with proteinuria, coronary artery disease, or HEFREF, as those patients have clear indications for either SGLT2s and or GLP1s. We hope that you have a better understanding of the question and uh, the problem of trying to change our first-line drugs for type 2 diabetes. Thank you for listening. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. 
For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.